Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Learning More. It's Russ with you. Uh, in case you haven't noticed, we're popping out episodes every other week this year instead of every week like last year. Heck of a lot easier for me and uh, lots of podcasting going on in my life these days. Uh, we've got the uh, DIY for Business show. If you've never checked that out, go check it out. I host it with this guy, Greg. Uh, fantastic uh, interviews over there. We, we get some great guests, so be sure to go check out DIY for Business. Also, I've been working on getting that on YouTube, so uh, we've got that over on YouTube now. Plus, everything over here on Learning More, I'm pushing to YouTube. Now, we're not doing the whole video thing and all of that. It's just audio, but it's kind of cool. Different way to check out and um, see what's going on or hear what's going on, I guess, in this case. But uh, yeah, YouTube, uh, just uh, do a little search for learning more. Probably put learning more Russ and uh, I'll pop up because that's one of the problems with the show. It's kind of a generic name, right? Like learning more. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, whatever. I, I thought of it because I so often click the little learn more button, right? Like because I do always want to learn something different, always want to learn something new. I'm always reading all these different things and checking different, you know, I, I enjoy this. It's it's so much fun. Um, last season, actually, um, I sort of dove into this topic of grief, right? And, and that was one of the things that I really wanted to learn more about. And after doing the show, I read this article by Brad Phillips on The Conversation um, about sort of a, a different look, a different take on grief, um, a, a, a different type of grief. Um, anyway, I'm going to let Brad do the explaining here and do the talking. Uh, first of all, Brad, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Russ. Happy to be here. Okay, so your article touches on ambiguous grief versus traditional grief, the five stages. We'll get into that later. But... Talk to us a little about the differences between traditional grief and ambiguous grief. Sure. You know, Ross, I think about traditional loss really in terms of, of death, right? Um, and, and I think about grief in that way with traditional loss is that somebody that was once with us has died. Um, and then we're entering this stage of bereavement and grief where we really, really miss this person that was once here with us. Um, and I think of that as being traditional loss, uh, traditional grief. Um, there's a lot of research around that five-stage model, you know, moving from denial all the way to acceptance. But in looking more about ambiguous loss, an ambiguous loss is really loss that is not death. So to kind of frame that for the listeners, when you think about maybe somebody that has a child that has a disability, right? And maybe the parent had these expectations of who this child would be, what they'd be able to do. And then that child has these limitations and disabilities that really, it really is a loss. It's, it's a grief that is ongoing. Uh, you can apply a similar context to maybe a parent or grandparent that has Alzheimer's right, or dementia, someone that was once who they were no longer is. And I think that type of grief and loss is drastically different than that of loss that's in death with traditional loss. So this is something people are going through it for a long period of time. Um, I, I always think um, of the five stages of grief, right? Like that's where I go when talking about grief. I, I think about those five stages. Um, 
Are those five stages also happening with ambiguous grief? I think, you know, the the five stages of denial, anger, um, you know, bargaining, depression, acceptance, you know, I, I think that those emotions are certainly there, but I don't think you could just put somebody into a category of they're in this stage, then they'll go into this stage and end with acceptance. Does anybody truly accept the loss that they are facing? And I would I would argue that no, they don't. Um, and even though maybe within death, when somebody is no longer with us or they're absent, it might be a little bit easier to come to terms with that loss and grief. But if you have somebody that is still living, um, but are very different than who they once once were, you experience that ongoing loss day and day and day, and you can never get away from that loss. And I think it presents all kinds of challenges. And so while I think those emotions of the five stages are likely omnipresent within that experience, um, I, I don't think you could just put somebody into a category and tell them to accept right. what they're living with. Yeah. I, and I think just by nature, we try to categorize things and, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, it's interesting to see if it comes into play. Before we get further into that, let's talk a little about your background. I'm a pediatric critical care nurse uh, by by profession. And so I've worked um, for over a decade in the pediatric ICU with a lot of children that have experienced things like profound traumatic brain injuries um, and, and and their parents. And I, and I often see, you know, these children who were once quote unquote normal now have these severe limitations. Um, they can't eat on their own. They can't walk on their own. They can't breathe on their own sometimes. And so all of those experiences in my clinical practice really kind of ignited a spark. Um, and, and, and how do these families process this type of loss? And as, as I continued into a career in academia, um, in, in a higher nursing institution. And as I received my PhD, um, a lot of my research was focused on these parents and how they experience this type of ambiguous loss. So that's kind of how my practice has driven my passion in research with these families to better understand what this loss looks like. Because to be honest, I, I mean, if you look at the literature and the research that's out there, the majority of articles just continuously cite the five stages of grief. And I just don't think that that is um, something that we need to, to, you know, continue just forcing and maybe kind of break free from that a little bit. You know, I want to talk about the parents, but first I've got to say this type of career um, comes with a lot of grief, like kind of built in. You're, you're seeing it all the time. It's got to be pretty tough, right? You know, I, I always say, Russ, it's probably the hardest job I've ever I've ever done, but the most rewarding. Nice. Most rewarding for sure. Um, nice, yeah. nice. Well, I, I thank you for doing it. Um, uh, I there's no way I could do it. I mean, I I just first of all, I'm 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 not. I don't think I'd have the best bedside manner, and <laughs> I don't think I could deal with the blood. I've um, never never done well with things like that. So um, I, I'm usually the one where you know, like my son will be getting some sort of treatment, or my daughter, or whatever, and I'm like the one the doctors are looking at because I'm about to pass out from anything. So um, whenever you know, <laughs> whenever I talk to somebody that is in healthcare, I always like to say that I totally appreciate it. Um, with you doing that position, though, does it come with grief and how, how do you deal with it? Is this also ambiguous grief that you're dealing with? 
I think as a healthcare provider, you know, I think it's very easy to get attached to our, our, our families and our patients, especially, you know, those that have, you know, maybe long-term hospitalizations, chronic illnesses. And so I think we do experience um, a, a, a lot of that loss with that family, uh, you know, but I think the hardest part for me was, you know, when a, when a patient and family is discharged from the hospital, you kind of don't know or don't get to find out what happens next, right? You know, and so we spend all these time with these families in the hospital uh, day to day, and then these families are discharged with their child or loved one home. Um, and then we kind of just hope for the best. And I think hoping for the best is is not is not the way. I think we need to, you know, do a lot better with following up with these families and and really touching base to make sure they have what they need to be able to care for their loved one yeah. in their own home. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure for you, 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 you sort of want to know as a healthcare provider, you helped this family get to a certain point. You saw like you were a part of, of this little small part of their life that had such a big impact on the rest of their life. You, you sort of want to know the outcome, right? You sort of want to see like what is going to happen with that family or what has happened with that family as you go along. It'd be great to like, be able to do some sort of uh, follow-ups like that to understand what they're going through after. And most of us don't get to know. Yeah. We never find right. out. But, you know, with my research, I've, I've, you know, spent a lot of time going into these parents' homes, you know, visiting their, the, I live in, you know, a rural state. So traveling to rural areas, rural pockets, and, and seeing firsthand what these parents are experiencing in their homes. So I've been able to get a whole different perspective that I could ever possibly have received inside the healthcare setting or the hospital setting. Right, right. Well, you're seeing the challenges that they're facing right in their own home. Uh, can you tell us a, a little about what are the challenges uh, that you saw when you were doing your research? Sure. You know, even like even setting the emotional toll of loss aside, if you think about um, a child that maybe needs to go home on some kind of advanced medical technology, whether it be a feeding tube or a ventilator or a tracheostomy, you know, with the way the current nursing shortage is in our country, those parents, I would say over 90% of the time, are the ones providing all the care to that child in the home. So they receive the best training we can possibly give them in a short time frame in the hospital and then ship them off to their home to provide around-the-clock care to that child. So think about the strain that puts on the parent, on their relationships, on the other children. Most have to give up working to be able to care for their child full-time. You take all of those, those types of caregiving responsibilities or caregiving burden and then add the weight of this ambiguous loss of, this is not what I signed up for. This is not how I envisioned my life to be or who I thought my child would be. You know, you watch their limitations every day. They're hooked to a bunch of monitors. So it's really like this physical caregiving burden, but then this emotional and mental just torment of loss that they're also dealing with and trying to maintain the basic household responsibilities, grocery shopping, cleaning, you know, just, it just right. piles up. Yeah. Well, they leave the hospital prepared with like the physical stuff, right? Like, you know, if it's a, a, a changing bandage, giving medicine, whatever, but not how to deal with the emotional stuff. Right. I mean, you can teach somebody to give a medication, right? We do that every single day in the hospital, but how do you know they're prepared emotionally, 
you know, psychologically, mentally, financially, spiritually, you know, there's really no way to assess that. Yeah. And really right now, there's no way to help with that. I, I feel like, right. Like what do we need to do uh, to start to help people dealing with the emotions of these situations? You know, I think, you know, aside from we need a lot more resources, you know, it'd be great to have, you know, in, in a perfect world, you know, we could have a nurse in every home. We can have, you know, um, support therapists in every home. We can have, you know, food and and financial support for these families, you know, in terms of physical, you know, resources in the community. But I think what we can do a little bit better is just listen and just ask. You know, I think as healthcare providers, you know, we, we will always check, we always check in on how the patient is doing. You know, that's usually, that's our priority. You know, how's the patient, right? Let's, let's check their vital signs. Let's, let's check their, their, their blood work, but taking the equal amount of time to check in on the caregiver, right? On the parent, on the spouse, on the daughter, right? Ask them how they're doing, you know, at, listen, have them talk to you, Offer different resources for them. You know, I think it's equally important. You know, we talk about family-centered care a lot, especially in pediatrics, but like the parent is just as important as the patient in the care we provide. And I think until we can really wrap our, you know, our minds around that, can we begin to to help the, the caregiver just as much as, as the patient experiencing the disease? Yeah. And it's tough on caregivers. You know, I mean, I've been there um, and it's not easy uh, to do what you need to do for the person and also for yourself. You know, um, one of the other things that you discussed in your article on the conversation, again, that is linked in the description, uh, is the theory of meaning. Can you tell us a little about that? Sure. You know, I, it, it, well, it kind of starts with, uh, you know, Viktor Frankl. I'm not sure if you've heard of Viktor Frankl. But he was a psychiatrist who was actually in the uh, the concentration camps um, during the Holocaust, and and you know after his time in those camps, he he developed this this theory of the will to meaning because he was able to observe other prisoners in the camp were were just positive, right? They 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 weren't depressed, they weren't just wallowing in their suffering, they weren't miserable, they were they were really just. They had a they had a positive attitude. They were optimistic. He's like, how is that possible? If you were in such a place of torment and suffering, how could you possibly act this way? You know, and and he found this will to meaning, which basically goes back to that every person at their core, you know, our our whole goal is to is to have a purpose in our lives. Uh, that's what that's kind of the human drive, the motivation to to live each day. And, and, and he really talks about how people are able to choose, right? They have the freedom to choose their decisions, how they perceive situations. And, and from that, uh, a nurse named Pat Stark developed a, a nursing theory, but called the theory of meaning based on Viktor Frankl's works. And it talks about just how, you know, our patients and our families that are going through this type of experience they had the freedom to choose how they perceive their suffering. And, and, and that work I kind of used to ground my research because I have found with these parents in all of my time in practice, 
you know, they could be, they could have the most difficult situation. Their parent, their, their child could experience a profound loss, but in time they, they are like, I would never change a thing. Right. I love my child just as they are. This is the most rewarding they've ever done. So I'm like, how do you, how do you just have such profound gratitude and hope from such a horrible situation. And I think it goes back to, they get to choose, right? They get to choose how they see the situation. Maybe it brought them closer to God, closer to their family members, you know, and, and those are the kind of stories that come out when I talk about these with parents, you know, they are able to see this light in these dark places. And I think that that little piece is what could give so many people hope experiencing this kind of loss. But I think the the bigger idea is that people are able to find meaning despite their suffering. And I think having those conversations and listening and helping somebody find maybe purpose in their situation um, and seeing the bigger picture is maybe what we should be doing instead. How do we get there? I, I know this is a big question, like an impossible to answer question, but how do we help people get there to discover that meaning? You know, I don't know if there, you know, if there's a, a perfect answer to that. I, I think, you know, from what the parents have said, a lot of things that they notice is small wins, right? Whether it be in their child's progress, um, like for example, their child may maybe meet an, a physical milestone they hadn't met, or maybe they smile, right? When they see a bird and they've, they've said those things before, but also I think confidence in themselves to be proud of themselves, that they're doing a good job, um, that they are enough, giving themselves grace, you know, all of those kind of things have what I've here is to be beneficial. Uh, another important thing is finding others going through similar things. So I think, you know, it, for example, you know, if, if you had somebody in your family with dementia, um, it'd be very hard for somebody who's never experienced that to know what you're going through, right? I think they can they can sympathize with the, you, but can they truly empathize with you? Hmm. So I think finding others that are experiencing similar things is important to kind of help somebody find the purpose and meaning in what they're what they're going through. And, and that could be hard, though, you know. But the thing is, I think it's important to remember that if you're going through something right now that there's somebody else out there that's also most likely going through that same thing, or they have gone through that and reaching out and finding those people that are going through it is very helpful. Um, I've done that several times in my life where I've talked to people that are going through the same thing, or I've been that person that's talking to somebody uh, about it, uh, whatever the situation is. Um, and it's great, but it's also sometimes hard. Um, how do we find people that are also going through the same thing that can help to support us? You know, you know, the big thing right now is social media support groups. Um, that, that is like the, the up and coming way of, of finding other people going through similar things. You, you know, you wouldn't even believe how many groups are out there. In fact, you know, with my dissertation where I, where, where I study these parents of these children, I recruited every single one through social media support groups. That's how I found them all. 
And so they are there. Those groups are there. And so I always encourage families, you know, hop on Facebook um, and see what's out there within your state. But then the, the great thing about social media support groups is there's a level of anonymity. If, if you feel uncomfortable sharing your name, right, you can you can join anonymously, ask questions anonymously, but also you can meet other people across the country and the globe, right? And so it's not you're not limited to what's in your community. Uh, so it really helps them expand right beyond where they are. Nice, nice. Uh, a, a positive mention of social media there on the podcast. This uh, this might be might be a first. <laughs> uh, no, social media it does have some some really good advantages, and this is a great example of one of those advantages. Um, you know, I I wanted to mention Brad that you're also uh, you're a nursing professor as well. You teach undergrad, graduate uh, students, doctoral students. Um, the information that you're talking about here on this podcast, I love that we're getting it out there and I'm wondering, is it also a part of the curriculum, uh, within your classroom? You know, I think, you know, number one, sharing research, right. With my colleagues and with my students is one way of kind of getting the word out there, um, doing things like this, right. Just to spread awareness of, of what ambiguous loss is and how to help people find meaning. Um, but then in teaching, you know, I, I teach, my favorite course to teach is actually going to be in the fall. And it's a course about children that have complex health needs. And the whole course is designed to, for undergraduate students to see how we can support not just the patient, the child, but the family, right? And they dig deep into all of these supported resources and figure out what is in our state and in our country that they would be able to access to help their families and patients once they become nurses. So I think really I, I include a lot of that supportive care component, the family-centered care component, and thinking outside the box, right? Don't, not just the patient laying in the bed, right? Look at the room, look beyond the walls. Think about the people in, in the communities that patient and family interact with every single day and just think bigger. You know, and I can't help but think, well, let's talk about now the people that are listening to this podcast that know somebody that's going through something difficult in their life, something that's, you know, causing this ambiguous grief. What do you say to them? What what can we do to help support these friends of ours that are going through this? I think too, you know, if if you if you know somebody going through things like that, you know, just maybe step up, right? You know, those listening to this, like step up, you know, don't exclude them because of what they're going through, right? Maybe make a better effort to include them maybe in a different way that they could join in maybe on a dinner party virtually or something where if they can't get childcare, they can join in a different way. A lot of these parents talk about how they feel lonely and isolated in their home, right? Because people don't really understand what they're going through. And I, and I think it's important just to take the time, right? Take an extra couple minutes. How can I include this person in their lives? How, how can I better understand what they're going through, right? It just goes back to reaching out and listening. Brad, thank you so much for, for joining me today. It was fascinating to read your article and then to actually get to chat with you on the show here. Again, for those of you that have not read the article, please do so. Brad, thank you so much for sharing this information with all of us today. Yeah, great. Thanks, Russ.
And thank you for listening, subscribing to learn more and also checking us out over on YouTube. As I mentioned earlier, yes, we've got the whole YouTube thing going on. So be sure to subscribe over there. Just starting out. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> it's kind of fun. Uh, anyway, I, I encourage you and thank you for rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends. As with any podcast that gives medical or legal opinion, the information is not meant to substitute professional advice. And I encourage you to consult a professional to discuss your exact needs. Uh, as I said in the beginning of the podcast, we're going to be doing this every other week. So we're not going to have a new podcast next week, but the week after we'll uh, be back with uh, more. And you know what? I'm always looking for ideas. I'm like, I don't know how many episodes in, 60, 70 episodes of learning more. Uh, there's always plenty of more to learn about, but I want to hear from you. If you've got ideas, if you've got something that you would like to learn more about, let me know. And I'm going to be able to build an entire episode around it. Submit your ideas and comments at learningmorepodcast.com. Again, thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. I'm Russ, and I look forward to learning more with you next time.